Welcome to Eurocron, a podcast about people whose names you may not be familiar with now, but you will remember their stories. Hi, I'm Scott Pitney, the host for Eurocron. So, without further ado, let's jump right into our next extraordinary story. We welcome our next guest to Eurocron, Katie Sunika. Katie is the evening weather anchor for News Channel 21 in Bend, Oregon. Katie is an outdoor adventurer, craft latte lover, and a meteorology student at Mississippi State University. She's an Oregon native who has lived all over the world. Katie married her high school sweetheart and is the proud mother of two. Before her career shift to journalism, Katie started and ran a wedding and event business for more than 10 years. She became interested in writing and telling stories while being a regular guest on the morning news. Katie turned to school for journalism, which led to working at KTVZ, training under Chief Meteorologist Bob Shaw. It didn't take Katie a long time to realize she loves weather. Katie, welcome to Yurkron. No, thank you for having me. Uh, it's great to have you on. I, uh, You are the first, um, um, well, I, I know your official title is weather anchor now, but soon to be meteorologist. So you are the first weather anchor slash meteorologist we've had on the show. And uh, it's great to have you because I, I have a personal interest and fascination with weather. So this is going to be a lot of fun for me as well. Um, so where is a good place to start your story? Oh, goodness. So I guess it depends on how much about me you want to know. As much <laughs> as you are. <laughs> yeah, as much as you are willing to share. We're, we're your audience, so bring it on. Spent just a little bit of time in the Pacific Northwest before we had to move down into California because of my brother's allergies. Um, he was just really, really not doing well with the damp climate on the west side of the Cascades there in the Willamette Valley. It just wasn't working for him. So we moved into Northern California, uh, lived in the Sierra Nevadas, Donner Pass area, Tahoe, Truckee, and those areas. Um, my dad's company got sold, so that moved us into the Sacramento Valley. And while we were in that part of the region, that's where I finished high school and ultimately where I met my husband um, between my junior and senior year of high school through a mutual friend. And we dated for a bit. My dad always wanted to get back to the Pacific Northwest. It was where his heart was. So after I graduated, I uh, moved back up with my parents. My boyfriend at the time was like, hey, you know what? I don't really have much going on here. I need to change the scenery. So he followed my family up, got an apartment and a job and started working. And then after about five years of dating, we got married in our early to mid 20s. After another five years, had our first child. And then within the year after um, our oldest was born. My husband decided he wanted to get his master's. And so we moved to Pittsburgh so that he could go to Carnegie Mellon University and get his master's in human computer interaction. That took us for part of the program in Pittsburgh. Part of the program was in Madeira, Portugal, which is an island off the coast there. Um, it's actually closer to Africa than it is to Portugal itself, but it is owned by Portugal. 
We lived there for a year on the island while he did the project portion of his master's. And uh, once he graduated, we knew our heart was in the Pacific Northwest. So started looking in Oregon and Washington and ultimately landed actually back in uh, the Portland area where he worked um, for a while. During that time, that's when I uh, somebody asked me to do a wedding for them. And I was like, you know, that sounds like fun. I'm an organized person. I enjoy um you know, helping people. And I was married and loved all that stuff. So I uh, coordinated a wedding just kind of off of what I knew. I had a fantastic time. Word spread like wildfire. And before I knew it, I had uh, two offices, one in the Portland area, one in the Salem area. I had a team of girls. We were coordinating multiple weddings a day, a weekend, having a great time. Um, at that point, uh, AM Northwest on Channel 2 approached me and said, we do a monthly segment on weddings and uh, we need a resident wedding planner to come on once a month and just talk to us about what's going on in weddings. And I was like, that sounds like fun. So I was doing that for a few years, running my business, having a grand old time. And uh, some things just started changing specifically uh, by this time we had had another another child and our oldest, the school he was in just wasn't working for him and he was actually falling behind. So my husband and I had a talk and just decided that we needed to bring him home and do some homeschooling, get him caught up back to grade level and then move him to a different school. And so it was kind of with a heavy heart, but with the excitement of knowing my family was first, I went ahead and shut down my business after more than a decade and focused on my family and my boys for a while. And then uh, once my youngest got into school, I realized, you know, I've been focusing on them for so long, but I was getting a little bored, just sort of not doing much with my time. And um, my husband brought up, hey, you used to have fun, you know, going down to Channel 2 and doing the morning show. Um, I never graduated from any form of college at that point because we went, we got married so young and went straight into supporting my husband while he went through his his associates, his bachelor's and his master's. So he said, you know, it's time for you, you know, pursue, pursue, pursue your passion. And I didn't even know what that was at the time. And uh, so I took a journalism 101 class at uh, Clackamas Community College and did a story out at the Portland Zoo about the kickoff for fall. They call it the squishing of the squash. Mm-hmm. And they bring out these 1200 1400 pound pumpkins and the Gosh. elephants just go nuts on them it's so funny it's fun they just they know that they're there they come charging out of their pen and just beat the tar out of them and eat them and throw them and play with them and the Oregon Zoo even though I was just a student at a community college treated me just like a member of the media I got a media pass I was right down there online with all of the Portland stations standing right next to all of their reporters that were there got to interview the curator just had the time of my life and uh, came home and was telling my husband about it. And he said he hadn't seen that sparkle in my eyes since I came home from my first wedding <laughs> and said that I should pursue pursue this. So mm. I went ahead and turned my focus at the community college for an associates in multimedia journalism and focused on all of that. Um, in that time, this particular degree required an internship. And KTDZ and Bend does a summer internship program. My parents were living in the area for the time, so we thought it would be fun to go spend the summer with grandma and grandpa. And my husband would just come over on the weekends. And I wasn't there for very long when they offered me a job. 
and uh, we talked about it. We've always loved the Central Oregon area. Um, being a native to Bend, that was, you know, we would go to Sun River and Bachelor and all those places for vacations all the time and just decided to take the opportunity to move to one of the most beautiful, active places we have ever been in the world <laughs> and uh, be there for whatever, you know, however long it may be. And I've been there for four years now and that's just like a whole nother story, the journey that I've taken in that time. So that's kind of how we landed in Central Oregon. Yeah. So prior to meeting Bob Shaw, the chief meteorologist that you interned under, did you have an interest in weather prior to that? So the answer to that is yes, but I didn't realize it until I was at KTBZ. So my father's profession was in water purification. And so I grew up around understanding water just in general, where it came from, the whole water cycle, how it worked. For a science project once, I used a fish tank and actually created my own ecosystem with a heat lamp and water and a lake and a hills and I made it rain in my little thing. uh, It just had a blast with that, doing it with my dad. And when you work at a small market news station, you often get an opportunities to do other positions. You don't always come in and it's more common that you don't come in and just report or just anchor. You fill in for other people, you try other things and they're always looking for weather fill-ins. And um, at this particular point, somebody was leaving and they didn't have anybody to fill in. They only had their morning, their evening and their weekend person and nobody to fill in. And so I thought, you know, I'm just going to take the opportunity to learn it. I've always kind of enjoyed the weather and, and, you know, less snow is like, to me, the joy of life, watching it snow. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, I would sit and watch it for hours and hours and I find a flake and watch it fall and always loved it and went through what we have um, lovingly named the Bob Shaw Weather School. And he <laughs> had you read a Meteorology 101 book and you watch some lectures from a college and he kind of gives you a basic understanding of the things you need to know to be a weather anchor and um, gets you to where you can understand how things and, and you don't know, give a weather forecast, basically. And as I was going through this and started doing it, I realized this is what I want to do. Like, I I can't even, I never would have thought of it ahead of time being a weather person or a meteorologist or, you know, a weather forecaster on the news. But once I got in there and I realized that one, the science is amazing. And every time I learn something new, I'm just enamored with it. And my husband laughs because he's like, oh my gosh, dude, I'm like, hey, look at this baby, look at this. And he just giggles because he sees that spark that he mentioned before. And so he just sits and listens to me spout off all this scientific nonsense to him. And then um, when I started doing it, and then I realized not only do I enjoy the science part of it, but my entire life, I wanted to have some form of a career that helped people. I didn't want to do something. I know everybody's job helps some people in a certain way, but I wanted something very direct. And it was one of the reasons I loved weddings is because it was a very tangible, very important day for people. And I was able to be there and, you know, relieve their mind of all the details so that they could just enjoy the wedding for the mom or the husband or, you know, whoever, the brothers, sisters, the family, they didn't have to worry about is the food out or whatever. When I realized that, you know, it rains on everybody 
Some people it impacts more than others. You know, when you look at specifically the homeless population and those sort of things, but everybody gets rained on, everybody gets snowed on, everybody has heat, and it's something that everybody pays attention to. And I really loved that aspect of it, partnered with the fact that when you're in the weather, more of your own personality gets to come out. You know, when you're reading a hard news story about a terrible accident on a freeway, there's a somberness to it and it's difficult and you're getting information where when it's raining and you've been waiting for that rain and everybody's excited about it, you can let who you are shine through the story that you're telling about the weather that's coming or or warnings. Like, you know, when I see a warning coming and I can tweet it out and I can Facebook it and I can Instagram it and I can, you know, do whatever. And then I see it immediately getting shared 25, 30, 40 times in a small town. That makes me happy because I know that people are taking me seriously and understand, hey, this is important. Pay attention. And so I feel like I'm able to help more people in this particular line of work than any other one I've ever done. So when you put all of those aspects together, um, I turned to my husband, I said, I want my degree. I want to really, really understand this. I want to get past the Bob Shaw Weather School and have a deep knowledge of the inner workings of the things that are going on. And I asked round randomly to a bunch of people, not telling anybody who I'd asked or what other people had said. And every single person I talked to said to go to Mississippi State and do their online program. It was the number one only really option that people were saying, this is the best one. You don't even need to consider anything else. So I yeah. went back to school. So that way I could really know what I was talking about. Yeah. I think one thing you touched on there, uh, it's interesting too, is you mentioned that people see you because you can get weather information. Anybody can get it on their phone, right? You, I mean, you can go there and find out what the temperature is, where the wind's blowing and all that. But you mentioned that they share your story. So they're actually going to their phone to see what Katie is saying about the weather because mm -hmm. they know it's going to impact them locally. So to me, that's the difference, right? Between uh, digital and why people still watch the weather on TV. Yes, exactly. And it's, if I've had so many people, you know, the, it, the information age was what we're in, right? Where you can get the information anywhere. But there's an element to looking at your phone and hearing somebody explain, here's the system that's moving in, here's where it's digging in, here's why the winds are going to pick up, and here's around the time you're going to see it. It's that human aspect that I think a phone will never be able to get you because you can look through, oh, it's supposed to snow, wind, rain, whatever here, but when you get somebody helping you understand the why of what's happening. And here, where I'm in, in Central Oregon, we have so many microclimates that, you know, the, the industry standard is to forecast out of the largest, nearest major airport. For us, that's in Redmond. The climate in Redmond is not only vastly different on either side of Redmond, but go down, you know, just go to the south, where for us, you're actually climbing elevation when you go to the south. You go through three more towns, and you'll have several feet of snow when it's never even touched Redmond. So being able to help people understand when the storms are swinging down around the bottom of the Cascades and coming up, that's a different time of storm than the ones that are coming down over the Cascades out of the Gulf of Alaska. Like it impacts everybody in each of those regions differently. So they could get their phone and take a look, but you don't get the detail and the intricacy of understanding exactly why or how or when these things are going to move. So they come in and look at those things and, you know, share my information because 
even though there's human aspect of it, I don't believe that a computer model will get it right as much as somebody being able to understand. And, and you know, for those who go through the, the schooling and learning models and how they don't work so well on inclines of mountains and hills and things like that, you have to use what you know about the area. You know, people will call me all the time, why is it windier here than there? And I'll look at the topographic and topographic topography, there's the word, <laughs> and walk through it with them. And, you know, they they develop that trust. So they're going to trust me more than they're going to trust their phone because I know where they live and I know why it's happening, not just that it's going to happen. Yeah. And you're from the area and you mentioned, uh, well, and I mentioned actually in the bio that, um, you had lived abroad. So most of your experience, obviously being in the Pacific Northwest has been with snow and rain and wind and those type of things, but living abroad, Katie, did you experience any other type of weather, maybe tropical weather or severe thunderstorms or anything like that? Cause you, you don't get a lot of severe thunderstorms in the area in, in Oregon, correct? We've had a few pretty good uh, supercells come through. Mm. And there was one that came through uh, almost two years ago now that it did. It looked like the Wicked Witch was coming in on <laughs> her room because it, the sky was green. It was glowing green. And I, my phone, my messages were immediately popping up. Katie, what is coming our way? Mm. Like it was intense. It was beautiful. Um, so yeah, so we get a few of those fun things. Our biggest stuff are, is wind. We have massive wind storms and ice storms and snow. That's where we, at least in central Oregon. Um, it, what was fun, so we lived in Pittsburgh for a bit, and that was just snow because <laughs> it was in the, in the winter, and I literally had to walk uphill in the snow both directions to go to the grocery store, and I didn't have a car at the time. Mm. So that was that was an interesting experience. However, I grew, like I said, at one point I lived in on Donner Summit in the Sierra Nevadas, and so snow is nothing new to me. When we lived in Portugal, Portugal and those islands that are in there, they're kind of the Hawaiian islands for Europe. And so that's where the cruise ships come in. That's where everybody goes to vacation. So I literally got sunburned on New Year's Day sitting out on my deck mm. because it was tropical, hot, you know, very, very different. There was, um, there are some higher elevations there that we went up a little later and they, they showed me, the natives showed me their snow, but it was basically just little grapple, little balls of ice, <laughs> snow <laughs> at all. It was just water that had melted and then refroze and melted and refroze. <laughs> it was not the snow that you and I know, but they were excited because they got quote, snow, you know, in those higher elevations. So it was, it was fun to experience kind of a tropical ice for a bit, but I like, I like some real weather. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So, um, you're, when you come on TV, of course, that's, I don't know, three, three or four minute uh, segment there, but obviously there is a lot of work that goes into that three or four minutes pr preparation and that type of thing. I would imagine, can you talk about what a, what a typical day at the office is like for a weather anchor slash meteorologist? Well, I think that there are some misconceptions here that could greatly be unveiled to the general public. And I hear a lot of time people think that um, there's weather forecasters out there that just look at apps and different things and, you know, kind of go from there. And in, but yet it's also not because you're on a time frame, you don't have the time to run all the computer models and, and 
do all of that sort of work, leg work too. And you're not pinpointing a forecast for an airport to know what the weather's going to be like for take takeoff and landings that day. So there's a, a balance between there where I come in and I actually come in a little early, but I only have two hours from when I walk into the station to my first newscast. And during that time, I have to just do a general forecast for, I usually do it out of the Redmond area. And then I will look at specific things that I can when there's rain coming or extreme temperatures or something. I'll go real quick and look at all the other areas within the region so I can give some more localized to the other parts of town. And then we have to, you know, I don't have any assistants or interns or anything. So I have to go once I actually do my forecasting, which involves, you know, looking at weather discussions by National Weather Service and seeing, you know, what they're they're seeing happening, what systems are moving into the area. I look at several different computer models, especially now that I've gone through Mississippi State and I know what each different model can do, what their weaknesses and their strengths are. I'll look at the the type of weather that's headed our way and you know switch between a few models to see which one is looking more accurate than the other. And then I'll compare that with other forecasts that have been done to see, you know, I like to have at least three or four different touch points for what I'm seeing compared to what other models and other forecasts and stuff are seeing to see if I'm really far off on something or if everything's looking pretty good. And then you have to set up your graphics. So I call them frames. You have a, usually a first and a main weather within a forecast. Sometimes you have little short ones and teases. And so you have to go and pick what would be best to communicate this information to the general public. And what are they going to see that's visually going to support what I'm saying so that way I'm not confusing them and they're not trying to figure out what they're looking at and missing what I'm actually saying, but it's also enhancing what I'm saying. So that way they're getting both a visual and an audio forecast that they can hopefully understand and know, you know, I'm telling them, Hey, everything's cool. Get your floaties ready and head down to the Deschutes or, you know, cover up your, your sprinklers and blow them out and bring in your animals and tie down your, your Christmas decorations because we have a big storm coming you know, I have to think graphically, visually, and verbally because you don't memorize anything. You don't pre-write a script. It's all ad-libbed as you're telling your forecast. So you have to almost edit yourself as you're talking to make sure you're speaking English and communicating clearly. So you have to get all of that ready to go. You have to do a web script so people go online and look at your forecast, watch your video on there. So you have to get that up. You have to get your teases written for anchors or whoever else is going to be tossing to you. And then um, we have a snow report now that we're in snow season. So you have to go and collect all the data for all the information of all the places that we watch and put in that to a snow report. Then I have to do what we call a topical tease where I get ready, camera ready, and meet with our promotions people and do a tease for television. So when you're watching the news, when you're watching TV, when you get home and you see those teases ahead to what's coming up on the news, I have to get that written and recorded and given to promotions and I have to do all of that in two hours before we go on for our first forecast. 
Then when we have active weather, I'm constantly watching as a model updated. Is there new snow totals? Are things backing off? Are we looking colder? Are the temperatures dropping? Because the model runs, you know, depending on which one you use, they update every couple hours, every six hours, every 12 hours. And so I constantly go back and watch those models and see what the new runs have come through. Have they changed anything? And I need to update my forecasts and, you know, maybe tweet out, hey, it looks like more snow or don't be so worried, less snow and keep that going. Specifically during severe weather events in the winter for us, it's a big deal to make sure you're constantly watching those model runs because new information is is important and can make a difference, especially if people are traveling over the Cascades. So busy weather days when we get into the, the winter months. We have very boring weather unless we get some afternoon thunderstorms in the summer. We'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by Pitney Properties. Pitney Properties provides real estate services to buyers and sellers located in and around the Houston area. Having been raised in Texas, LeVon Pitney is incredibly well-versed in the area's housing market and always manages to find her clients those hidden gems that other agents tend to overlook. LeVon's relentless style and integrity allow her to hold client satisfaction at her highest priority. She works hard to make the entire home buying and selling experience as is productive and enjoyable as possible. Whether her clients are first-time buyers or seasoned investors, LeVon works tirelessly to accommodate their needs and exceed their expectations. To learn more about LeVon's real estate services, please don't hesitate to call her today at 713-805-8871. That's 713-805-8871 or contact LeVon at sold at Pitney Properties. Katie you are currently in school to get your meteorology degree. If, if you were not a student in school pursuing your meteorology degree, would you be working in the position that you're in now? Do, do stations, in other words, do they require a meteorology degree to be a uh, broadcast meteorologist? Typically, what you see is smaller markets. And I, if I remember off the top of my head, there's like 250 or 260 news markets. And the higher up you go, the more they require of you. So smaller markets like I'm in, they will teach you what you need to know to be a forecaster or a weather anchor, as they call it. The meteorology thing is just a bonus. But if you decide you want to move up in markets and get higher than around 100, maybe maybe up to market 50, depending on the situation, then you start seeing any job applications it says, you know, bachelors in meteorology or equivalent. Mm. And so once you get to those higher markets, they do. And they also require you to tell them what you're going to add to your forecast that people couldn't figure out just on their phone. Mm. And that's part of understanding how weather works more than understanding the 
the term we use is sea dog, say dog. You know, when you're a weather forecaster, you look, you see, you say. When you're a meteorologist, you look, you understand, you reiterate it in a form that people can understand. So if we came on and used all of our weather terminology, I would lose people when I would talk about all the scientific words that go along with it. So you have to know what you're saying, but be able to bring it to where people who don't understand those terms get the importance of what you're saying. So it's the higher you get, the more they require of you. But anybody can get their start and stay at a small station and not be a meteorologist if they didn't want to have to go that far. Interesting. So how many at your station, uh, you mentioned you're in a small market. How many people work in your weather department that are, are on air? So let's see. Um, actually right now we just had somebody leave his contract was up and he moved on. So we had, so let's see, we have Bob and me and Jack and Jordan and Ariel. So we have five that work in weather right now. Three of us are the permanents and then the other two, excuse me, our fill-ins. And then we have two more people who've expressed interest in learning and seeing what it's like. So they're starting their school actually as soon as we're done with the holidays. So having fill-ins is really great because there was a time before I took the main evening position where I was the only fill-in and I worked doubles because somebody would be sick and somebody would be on vacation and there would be nobody else to fill in. So I would come in in the morning, do the morning show, go home and sleep for a few hours and then come back and do the evening because there was nobody else to do it. So wow. the more people you can have to fill in, the better because it's less less impactful on everybody. Right. And and so just I'm just kind of doing some quick math in my head. You mentioned there's uh, 200 and some odd stations in the country markets and I I would guess most of the stations are kind of like yours, maybe four or five, six positions per station. So I don't know, 12, 1200, maybe broadcast meteorology positions nationwide. Is that maybe yeah. I know that when you have to think to the smaller stations, like for us, we don't have any afternoon forecasts and we don't have or a news broadcast. So if we were to add either of those, you would have to have another permanent person in place. Mm. That's probably reasonable, but it also depends on what newscasts and what times. And I, some stations I've seen, they have a different person during different newscasts. You know, the bigger stations, usually the chief meteorologist is in the evening um, that's the, the prime time, like around five and six, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so that's usually the typical. So depending on what other you know positions you have, I know there's some in Seattle that have two people that do the mornings, you know, they'll have multiple people. So that way, if one person calls in sick, they always have a backup and they don't have to bring somebody else in. So there could, it could be a few more than that, depending on how the stations, the different stations operate. Okay. So talking about weather coverage in general, and especially since you're in school right now, um, do, do they have classes that teach you or um, what will weather coverage, how will it change over the next several years? So that's, this is all personal. This isn't really based on anything that anybody has told me, but mm. I, I believe um so you know how we were talking about people going to their apps and using those more mm-hmm. and um, then there's the new Fox weather app where mm-hmm. they're doing broadcasting specifically 
on their apps and online. I, I honestly think that's the future. I know that I do not believe that a weather forecaster's position will ever completely go away, but I do believe that it will be not as much linear forecasting as it will be somebody will have their Fox weather app or their NBC weather app or, you know, whoever national weather service and people will go to their app and see either the most latest forecasts or possibly if there's severe weather threat and they can watch those that will be specifically delivered to phones or websites or, you know, however somebody on their iPads or tablets or whatever. I'm, I'm, I believe that news in general is moving away from linear broadcasting and getting more digital. And that's where, you know, people are more interactive, they're more social, they're sitting on their couch and they're, you know, playing on their phones or they're taking a break at lunch and they're looking at their phones and um, not sitting on their couches and watching. We call them cord cutters, people who are stopping cable and those kind of things and turning more to all of these apps. And I, I do believe that that's the direction people will be consuming it more because I still think they need that human element, but they don't want to sit through, you know, I mean, I do a quick weather at the beginning of a newscast and then a three to four minute weather halfway through. And if that's all that they're looking for, you know, they, they don't necessarily, they're getting their news from NPR or whatever, you know, apps they're reading through Google or Apple or whatever, you know, they're not, they're less than likely. And we, we put our forecasts, on a website and there's actually pretty bad coverage in central Oregon. So there's a couple of counties that don't even get us. And that's how they solely get my forecasts is they go and watch it on our website because they can't even watch the station. Mm. And I believe that's just, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Of course, climate, climate change is a big topic and you know, at least locally, I'm in the Houston area. I don't see the weather talking about climate change much, even though we've had some yeah. <laughs> extreme weather. Uh, you know, I, I can't tell you how many days we've had in the 80s here in Houston in December. But uh, obviously, it's a big topic. A lot of it's uh, pol- politically driven. Do you mm-hmm. do you see the media covering this topic more locally in the future? Actually, I do. I have every night during 10 o'clock, I have uh, a block. It's the third block in where I talk about all kinds of different weather related stories, not so much forecasting. And we look at um, different stories about, you know, major floodings or climate change or, you know, all those kind of things. So we talk about it quite a bit during our 10 o'clock. And I, I think, as you mentioned, it's you know, unfortunately, it's politically driven. So I think that the side that leans more toward that being a reality, talk about it more. And the people that don't believe in it as much, those type of organizations probably don't talk about it as much. But it's definitely something that, you know, it's becoming more and more talked about. And I'm seeing more and more stories come up about it, whether that's because I'm a little more in tune to it because of my new career path, or if it's just becoming more accepted as a topic to be discussed on a regular basis could be a little both. Yeah. And how much climatology studies do you have in school? Are there specific classes that focus on that? I know I've had at least three that I can think of off the top of my head. And that is, let's see, one, two, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 12, 13. So at least three of 13 classes that I've taken so far were focused on climatological aspects. 
not as much meteorology. Once and two specifically are called applied and physical climatology. So there's definitely looks into um, the past and you know having you define what's the difference between climatology and meteorology and understanding the difference between the two. But it's definitely you know I guess in my opinion you have to understand the past to know what you're looking at and and prepare for the future. So I think it's important to understand how things have changed. And I'm glad we've had them. They've been, they've been some of my favorite classes. Yeah. So that leads into my next question. So uh, prior to maybe taking those classes, you were getting a lot of information that a lot of us get, you know, about carbon emissions and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So is there anything, any takeaways from those classes that you where you just kind of had, wow, light bulb <laughs> went on kind of moments where you were like, okay, well, this, this makes a lot more sense now. Yeah, actually very, very much. So, um, being a child of the eighties, global warming was something that I, you know, grew up with that term and I hadn't realized until I got into school that it had shifted to climate change was the, the newer term, you know, to be, used. And I think my sort of aha or light bulb moment was the climate is always changing. That's, that's not a scientific, that's a scientific fact. That's not a lie. That's not a conspiracy. Our climate has always been changing since the beginning of time, but it's the rate of change that's alarming right now. Mm. And that's the, that's the part for me that I was like, okay, like, it's true. We've always seen temperatures changing. We've had, you know, all these different periods and learning about, you know, all the different stages that the planet has been in. You know, I, I really enjoyed that, but it was when we got to the point where, you know, and it's changing again, but it's that rate of change that is alarming and that's what we need to pay attention to. So that was kind of my aha light bulb moment of realizing it always changed, but it's just a little too fast at mm, this point. Interesting. Going back to meteorology um, in general, uh, maybe a lot of us aren't, um, <laughs> we're maybe a little camera shy and uh, don't want to do the broadcast side of it. Uh, and maybe some of your fellow classmates even um, are going different directions with that degree. What, what are some of the, if you want to, if you have an interest in weather, but you don't want to be on TV or maybe work for the National Weather Service is probably the other um, big hiring organization for meteorologists. What, what are some other positions that are available to meteorologists? There's quite a few. And that was actually another reason I was interested in it is I didn't know if I would always want to be on camera. Um, it can actually be really hard to do because we don't need to talk about this, but people are mean. And I don't necessarily like people regularly commenting on my dress. Like That's not what I'm there for. I'm there to talk about the weather. Mm. So I was interested in, you know, what other what other ways can I use this degree and some that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, the company that makes our software, it's called Baron or Lynx is the company. And when I call in and say, hey, I'm trying to figure out how to bring up these snow totals in this area, the people that you talk to are meteorologists. And so they not only understand how to use the program, they understand what you're trying to do. And when I went into the program, they told me, give us a call if you're learning something in school and you want to figure out how to work it into your weather forecast. 
we will show you. And so when I was going through um, the program where I was learning about weather models, I called them and I'm like, hey, I've learned about this one and this one and this one. They're like, oh yeah, go in here. We have all of those models listed here. You can bring that up and then play with this. And they showed me how to integrate that into my forecasting. So they're very actively involved in using their degree and actually helping people who do go on camera, but they don't have to do going on the camera themselves. So that's one way that I've seen it used. Um, I have another one. They know people that have meteorology degrees work for insurance companies and they forecast hurricanes, tornadoes, active severe weather that could impact an insurance company and help them figure out how much they want to charge people and how much they need to charge for insurance in certain areas that are flood prone and some of those different aspects of severe weather that they may have to pay out on. Um, I have a current classmate who just moved from ag weather to, and I don't remember the name of the company, but he's helping to forecast wind for solar power and for, for wind power, excuse me. And so he's going into work for this company to help them with understanding how to best harvest wind power all coming off of the coast. Um, there was one other one that I was thinking about. Oh yeah. Um, uh, atmospheric harvesting, which is something I am becoming extremely passionate about and working on a story right now with um, places that are, you know, don't have natural or clean water flowing and they're not getting rain. There's all different kinds of atmospheric um, harvesting possibilities out there. Common ones that we know about is, you know, collecting rainwater and, and, you know, those, those sort of things run off, but there's other technologies that are being developed where you can extract water from the air and turn it into high quality drinking water directly from the source. And it's a, the story I'm doing right now is about a solar panel that powers fans that draws the air in, pushes the air through a cloth, extracts the water out of it, puts the air back out and puts the water, puts some different things and vitamins and runs it through and make sure that it's all, you know, good. And then you can drink it and it's like lost quality water. So I'm actually working with the developers of the technology and the panels, as well as talking with some of the Mississippi State's um, professors who understand atmospheric harvesting and, you know, what does that do? Does that harm us? Does that help us? Because um, we have atmospheric rivers that come through and we just recently had one in the Pacific Northwest that there was as much water in this atmospheric river as at the mouth of the Mississippi River. Wow. So being able to draw from that when we can and store it for when we don't. This particular professor I'm working with says that she believes that this is going to be the future of clean drinking water specifically for really drought stricken areas. And it's not supposed to be detrimental to our environment and to our climate. So I'm going to be interviewing her about that here in the next few weeks of how can that be possible? Because, you know, if you're taking it from the air and it's not going to where it's supposed to go, but she's going to explain to me why. And the guy that is doing that I'm talking to that makes these panels says you would have to have like 70 panels per human being on the planet in order to make an impact of how much air we water we can pull from the air if we were to put that for, for people. So we have a specific area here in Central Oregon 
that their water structure is aging, terrible infrastructure, breaking pipelines, boil order, boil water notices on a regular basis. And they now have a, a solar power, it's called a hydro panel farm, where locals can come once a week and fill up water to take home. They're expanding it and actually putting some people's homes and it's being funded by a nonprofit to bring them drinking water. And these hydro panels are being piped directly into some people's houses so they can just turn on water and get it when they need it when they haven't been able to do that for years so it's it's an amazing thing and being a meteorologist all that to say this is there's other very strong applicable places that you can use it rather than being on tv it just depends on where your passion is and how you want to use it yeah um an example uh, my wife and i were out um, a couple months ago here in Houston and I ran into a, a guy um, at the uh, restaurant and he was a forensic or is a forensics oh, meteorologist. Yeah. yeah. And I, I said, forensics, that, that sounds interesting. I said, what, what, what do you do? And he goes, well, I basically, you know, I'm a one man sole proprietorship, uh, don't even have an admin assistant. And what I do is I work with uh, attorneys mostly. And when they need, um, expert witnesses in trials, they call me. And normally the other side that I go against, you know, they get, they try to get maybe an engineer or just somebody tech in their company to try to explain their side of it, you know, uh, if it pertains to weather. And he goes, I, you know, I always win the case because I'm, I'm a meteorologist. And I said, well, you know, I asked him a, a little bit more specific what what exactly do you know do you testify about and he said well for example if a car hydroplanes off the street or off the highway or whatever um i'll go back and look at weather data and try to determine if it and if and how much it rained that day at that spot at that exact location and all i'm wow mm -hmm. that is very cool i've never heard of that that is cool yeah i've never heard yeah. of that uh, p um, type of uh, position in meteorology yeah so there's other there's other things you can do and I, I may go that way someday and teach. Yeah. <laughs> That's another one you can do. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we know there's be retired. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, OK, so going back to that water making, that, that is so cool. I'm just sitting here in my mind thinking because we uh, here in Houston, when I say we here in Houston, we are in severe weather situations following hurricanes. Well, actually, just this year when we had the uh, what they call the polar plunge here in Texas, where everybody's pipes froze and a lot of people didn't have running water for days. I mean, mm -hmm. I know you're just kind of learning about this or studying about these products, but is this actually something that you could have in your house and flip a switch and make water uh, available immediately? So the answer to that is yes, but you would want to, um, the, the better thing to do would be to have it going so that you already have some water available. Mm. It, it, so its productivity depends on your climate. Obviously some air you know, has a bit more moisture to it than others. We all know that, but it also, um, you know, it depends on the time of year when, you know, when you have more moisture available. So the idea is these, they say that they put two panels per 
house minimum for some people, depending on how many uh, people and how much water you're trying to produce. And it's, I, I, these are facts that I'm going to need to, um, I'm going to be verifying with them, but it was something like 5,200 water bottles it replaces in a lifetime. Mm. Again, depending on where you, once you get it installed, it's like a thousand or something, a couple thousand to get it all set in and installed and everything like that. And then once it's going, you replace the filter once a year. And I, I believe they put, I wish I could remember it. it. It was a quick message with their PR person when I was setting it up. They, they, they put some vitamins in it and I think they run it through ultraviolet, uh, which I know my dad used to do when he was purifying water that when he worked up in Seattle. So I think they run it through ultraviolet light, add some vitamins or something to it. And you literally, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to take a cup and I'm just going to drink right out of it. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And she gave me numbers on how much it can produce a day and, you know, and, and things like that. It wouldn't be enough unless you stored it for a long time or had like a water tank, you know, to take a shower or anything like that. But you could probably, you know, have enough for drinking and washing some dishes and, you know, basically getting through um, a difficult time. But if, you know, if you just, oh, the power's out, I'm going to go, you know, turn on the solar thing. It might take a day or two, two to get, you know, enough water to have to drink. So you would probably want to, you know, bottle it or store it or have a water tank that you could put it into. So it was ready when you needed it. Sure. But boy, what a handy thing to have. And I'm sure all, yeah. all your neighbors would yeah, want Yeah, I was supposed to do the interview before <laughs> I came down to visit my family. But the guy was in Australia at an elementary school that had no running water and they put these in there and he didn't have good enough the, um, Wi-Fi to do a, a Skype interview or Zoom interview with me. So we had to postpone until after I got back. But they're they're putting them all over the world in places that are just in desperate need of water. It's pretty cool. That, that's very cool. So um, if, if someone out there is listening to this uh, podcast and they're thinking, man, meteorology, that has some, that's something I've been always interested in. And, you know, they're getting thinking about getting started in their career, maybe looking into meteorology. What, what recommendations would you have for them? Ask questions, reach out, get to know your local people. Maybe if you can, you know, reach out to some people that aren't in your area, call the schools that have meteorology programs and talk with the directors and look over course materials. And, you know, there's so many, so many resources available. National Weather Service, NOAA, you know, AWS, the American, uh, the meteorology, AMS, American Meteorology Society, all those places have fantastic websites where you can dig in and read and learn and get a better, you know, understanding of what it is before you would make any type of career decision. There's so much information out there from really good, credible sources that have been doing this for, you know, I was looking at National Weather Service the other day. They have records for our area that date back to the 1900s, early 1900s. And that's, you know, that's not even that far back. I'm sure they have them for even farther in other places. But there's so much information out there. Just like I said earlier, we're in an information age. So just start reading and researching and calling and connecting with people. That's been the biggest thing for me is meeting other people that have both gone before me, people that I'm in the same place with, and then people that are coming after me and keeping that constant communication of the, you know, the people that are moving through the industry and it helps you stay connected and, and learn constantly as you're going. Yeah. And I think just as we just touched on a bit too, just uh, um, really exploring all the possibilities that they're understanding. There's a lot more 
there are maybe a lot more positions um, than just National Weather Service, broadcast meteorology, so many different ways to to get into that field. Uh, just running into that guy that said he was a forensics meteorologist. That was, <laughs> I was like, wow, that's uh, that's pretty cool and something I've never heard of. So, yeah, that was neat. I like that idea. Yeah, yeah. So um, we get to what I call our legacy question on your cron, and that is, if in a hundred years somebody is listening to this recording. What message do you want to leave with them, Katie? And what maybe advice or, or uh, you know, just kind of uh, they're listening to this recording. What do you want to tell them? Well, it depends if you're talking about meteorology or just in life. <laughs> <laughs> Different thoughts on both of them. You know, something something that I want to be remembered as if, you know, looking, I was able to look back and see, you know, in a hundred years, what I was remembered for. And it would be mostly just the simplest way is, is elevating other people Mm. and propelling other people forward. I want to be remembered as somebody who isn't remembered as being the, it's the right word for this. I don't care if I'm not the person who's remembered for doing it. I would love to be the person that's remembered for getting somebody else what they needed to do it. So the example I can give is, you know, coming out of a conversation with somebody, I don't need them to think Katie's amazing. Katie can do anything. I want them leaving that conversation thinking, you know what? I can do this. I should pursue my passion. I should do what I've always wanted to do. I am smart enough. I am talented enough. I do have the capability, the qualities, you know, whatever is needed in this. I want to empower other people to do what they want to do and give them the the tools, the confidence, whatever it is that they need to pursue what they is. Because I feel like that's the legacy that lasts from generation to generation to generation. Would I love to be somebody who pioneered something that helped, you know, with water and, and people that need the drinking water, whatever. Of course, I'd love to, to have some sort of impact. But I think the one that you leave is for the next generation that leaves it for the next generation that leaves it for the next generation. Otherwise, it's not a legacy. It's just in a history book and it ends. That's that is awesome. That is a great way to look at it. Yep, because it uh, we we may be the driving force to pass that that on to the next generation, and and you know it's our choice to do that, and and so uh, it's good to think in terms that way. We don't want to take something with us that we could have left behind to help somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome, exactly. awesome. Katie is the evening weather anchor for. News Channel 21 in Bend, Oregon, KTVZ. If you want to check her out, I'm sure you can find her online. And Katie, thank you so much for being on your cron. That was awesome. I really enjoyed that conversation. Okay, thank you for having me. This was fun. You bet. And enjoy uh, the rest of your time. And uh, and since uh, we are in New Year's week, happy early New Year's. <laughs> yes, happy New Year's too. That's right. We're almost there, aren't we? Yeah. 2022, 20, here we come. Here we go. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.